Welcome to Watershed's November podcast. My name's Mark Cosgrove and I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed. My name's Tara Duder, I'm the cinema producer at Watershed. And this month we are joined by MA curation student Thea Berry. Hello. Your project is Reclaiming the Witch, which I'm really excited about. Mm. It's a season of films and events. Just tell us more about what, what people can expect from this. Um, so there are eight films that are going to be screening over sort of each weekend um, in November. Um, the first weekend on the 3rd and 4th of November, the first film we, that I'll be introducing as well is The Wizard of Oz. And I chose to start with that one because it has perhaps the most iconic witch in pop culture that so many people can draw on. Is this the uh, Wicked Witch of the... Wicked Witch of the West. Wicked Witch of the West, yes. yes. And also the very creepy Glinda the Good Witch. Yeah. Who makes also an appearance in uh, David Lynch's Wild at Heart, in a, well, in a sort of homage way. So, uh, yeah, that film's also kind of like a, a reworking of The Wizard of Oz. Because uh-huh. one of the things that is interesting is that popular, the witch in the popular imagination, and of course it's, it is Hollywood that yeah. has constructed that. I mean, I, I'm thinking of Disney and... Um, Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Um, and it's the gnarled black hat, gnarled nose. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it, you know, Broomstick, which kind of Wizard of Oz, sort of Wicked Witch of the West. Sort of, yeah. It's part, part of that Hollywoodization, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, because when the, they were, the studio wanted to put the film out, they were drawing on inspiration from Snow White and they were going to originally make her an incredibly beautiful and glamorous mm. witch. And then they decided completely against that uh, to make her this this sort of other being which I think you know works works in its own way mm. yeah and then so following Wizard of Oz there's The Witches the Roald Dahl adaptation which is one of my favourites I loved the book so that's, that's much that's such a brilliant brilliant film yeah. I, I think it's um, so Angelica good. Houston is I mean it's terrifying yeah. but it, it's that classic Roald Dahl where it is a kind of kid story but you just go oh my lord yeah. <laughs> it's terrifying well, cause I, I, I loved it as a child it's so yeah. good I, I, I had the tape when I was a kid I read the book all the time and I just remember I was always looking for women who are wearing gloves yeah. sensible <laughs> shoes whether they had like fire in their eyes yeah. like Constantly, always like yeah. on the lookout for these other beings, and it's. And I, I rewatched it in preparation for this, and it's mm. just, it's, it's so much fun, but it's so horrible, in the right kind of way. In that, yeah, Roald Dahl in way one, that yeah. he does, yeah. Yeah, and they're remaking it. Robert Zemeckis is going to okay. directing, yeah. and Alfonso Cuarón and Guillermo del Toro are executive producers. Ah, right. And the, but the thing about the original is it was it was Nick Roig, yeah. actually, and you tend to forget that yeah. in the sort of canon of Nick, um, that great director Nick yeah. Roig's work, um, that he did this kids' film. Yeah, but with its yeah, with its own very strange uh, adult yeah. edge to it. Yeah. Yeah, and then following that, we've got the panel discussion chaired by Tara. Yeah, we've got some really wonderful guests coming mm-hmm. up for that. So um, Kelly Weston, who is current uh, a writer for Sight and Sound, but also researching a PhD at Birkbeck and. I just know, I've been on a couple of panels with Kelly before, I just know she's going to have some brilliant insights. Anna from The Final Girls, um, who has come to Watershed before, so people might be familiar with some of the stuff uh, that The Final Girls have presented, which is the intersection of feminism and horror films, uh, and also Dr. Shelley Cobb. Um, so we've got a really fantastic lineup of guests where we're going to go a bit bit further and a bit deeper into this idea of who the witch is, what are the, what are the stereotypical tropes, why has she been uh, depicted that way, 
And then what does reclaiming her mean? What are the implications of that? Well, that's what I was going to ask is that, you know, it's called reclaiming the witch. Mm -hmm. And in a way, um, you know, we talked about the Hollywoodization of which you, you sort of feel have they had bad press? And, and you know, is there, because I, I think of Bewitched, actually, yeah. I think was probably one of my first, the television programme was mm -hmm. Tabitha, I think was her name, yeah. was one of my first sort of, and, and she was a lovely witch. Yeah, she just wrinkled her <laughs> nose. She just wrinkled her nose. And she, she just changed and made, and she made good things happen. Yeah. And of course, there is the the, the good witch in, in them. But but there has been a lot more, you know, writing and and more nuanced visions and uh, images and ideas about the witch. Yeah, I think there's something that this it's a revisionist look at this character. So there was a novel released this year, Circe, and it's about the the tale from the Odyssey and the witch Circe who lives on the island, she turns mm. Odysseus and his men into pigs. And it's about going back and looking at her side of the story, how she came to be while she was put there. And that's sort of what I wanted to do is to look is to look back and have with these films that largely are Hollywood produced films, look over it again and think, why is it that way? Especially, you know, Wizard of Oz is eighty made eighty years ago. And thinking about the production of that film the characters, the way that the actors were treated as well in the same, um, you know, with Judy Garland and how she was treated during that time as well. It's, it's, it's really interesting. But then also you have the three most modern films. So I Am Not a Witch by Ringano Nioni, which came out last year. The Witch by Robert Eggers. And of course, The Love Witch by Anna Biller. Mm -hmm. Three incredibly different films. But, you know, with... I'm Not a Witch and The Love Witch having a satirical edge mm. to it. And I was reading an interview with Regano Nioni. She said that before they started watching the, making the film, she got her crew to watch Dr. Strangelove. Okay. And to say, you know, what we're making is satire. We're mm. laughing at ourselves. Mm. And she wants the audience to be able to laugh. I think that's what's really interesting. And the same with The Love Witch. I think some people for The Love Witch, it went a bit over their head in terms of why it's funny, mm. but also why it, it's shocking, but in a way that it's not, you know, you're not horrified, but you go, oh God, yeah, that's really, that's so true, what she's trying to say. Mm. And it also looks, it just looks amazing as well. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that the, the, those three contemporary films, mm. the, the Witch is sort of being revisited. Yeah. And you mentioned that one called The Witch, yeah. um, which is, is set in a kind of more, Historical, historical yeah, context, yeah, and of course England. that conjures up um, Salem, yeah. um, and the whole thing around actually, which which, and the evilness was used as a way of society, mm. largely male, uh, treating wayward, troublesome, disruptive women, yeah. and what you would say is you are, you know, well you're a witch, and then you've got to disprove and have, you know Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, about that is a great sort of illustration of how that was used yeah. to demonise and deal with women. I think, yeah, exactly, yeah, the witch was a sort of embodiment of misogynistic anxieties of that time, but also the anxieties of everything. The, the um, people couldn't afford to eat, the crops were dying, mm. and they'd blame it on something else because they don't know what it is. An external thing, yeah. And then obviously stoked by quite um, deep puritanical beliefs mm. at that time, and that's what the film does so well, is to build this mm. bubbling anxiety around this family who have been exiled from their, um, from their village and moving next to this really ominous woods and forest and how that completely tears them apart. Mm. And, and the, the, the other great thing about, mm. particularly about that 
filmed the works of the British one is that um, it, it's a really fantastic cinematic experience. Mm. When it, I remember when it was released, watching it, and it was it was like a kind of return to that um, supernatural, psychological thriller horror uh, genre, which Hammer used to do um, yeah. brilliantly. Mm. And are there other events that, you mentioned the panel discussion, are there other events that are happening? So I'm doing some introductions, I'll be introducing The Wizard of Oz and also The Witches of Eastwick, which that's the film that sort of inspired me to look back over witches. Mm. Because I think, you know, you've got four amazing actors, Jack Nicholson, yeah. you've got Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, you've got Susan Sarandon, yeah. four massive names yeah. in this big blockbuster piece of like camp fun but there's so much to unpick yeah in there you can really tear to shreds jack nicholson's character of this post weinstein bathrobe wearing um alt bro as you would say so a guy who's very you know he's um he's very woke he's really very much open to lots of feminist issues and always talking to young women about he's always sympathizing of the strife of being a young woman mm. yet only uses that to his advantage um, in order to bed them, basically. And that's what's really fun about his performance. I just think it's really fascinating. For something that's, you know, it's a, it's a mainstream Hollywood film. Mm. I think what's, what's um, great about the season is mm. precisely that, that, you know, you're sort of revisiting work from earlier. You said uh, Wizard of Oz 80 years ago, which is a V-Suite, and seeing them through the prism of now. Yeah. Um, and it's that um, context which then makes the, the the watching of the film, the different interpretations that they lend themselves to. Yeah. And as you say, there's there's opportunities for audiences to um, both watch, but also to, to find out a bit more if they're interested. It's films that you can watch together and that people have grown up on. Um, you know, the nicest, I think, nice, not a great word, but the nicest film that Kiki's Delivery Service is such a lovely film of a young girl, sort of living, well, 13-year-old girl living by herself, having to work by herself to become a witch. And I think it's a really, it's obviously, you know, beautifully made, as those Studio Ghibli films always are. Um, and it's so different from the witch that's portrayed in those Hollywoods. An American film. It's like the the antithesis to the Disney witch, which yes. both of which are depictions that start from childhood, so that you are kind of accustomed to the stereotype. Um, and, and even though it is a, a a different view, I think the interesting thing about Kiki's is that it still poses the kind of witchhood as a sort of coming of age yeah. or as a kind of rites of passage. So there's loads um, to kind of unpick there, which we. We will do on the panel discussion on the 4th <laughs> for anyone who wants to, to hear more and go into greater depth. But it's also um, very timely because this is also the month that the homage to the original Dario Argento Suspiria with um, Luca Guadagnino's remake or homage rather than remake of Suspiria is also being released. Um, and Thea, I know that um, you've seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you think? It's quite an amazing visual and sort of visceral experience. The music by so the score by Tom York and the set pieces of the, of the dancing are is really quite amazing. And the cinematography is beautiful. It's also, it's mad. It's you know, it's two and a half hours of 
okay, where's this going? And then you go, oh no, this is great. Like I'm really into this. This is brilliant. And then sort of 45 minutes of, okay, I don't know what that was, but I want to go and see it again. I think that's exactly for me the yeah. most important thing about this film is that I, I just can't wait to see it again. Yeah. Um, it's completely crazy uh, in the sense of where where it starts, where it ends up, mm. the different things that kind of happen in it. It's almost like three or four movies happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, and probably you won't like all of them. I didn't. I only liked a couple of them. But <laughs> I definitely want to rewatch it. Um, I think it does something really interesting with the, the dance and the music sequences mm. are just exquisite. Mm. Um, and it very deliberately references Pina Bausch. Um, that style of dancing, Tilda Swinton is pretty much embodying Tina ba uh, Pina Bausch in the way that she's styled hair and makeup up wise um, and in her dress uh, so there, there's really something to enjoy just in the kind of choreography and artistry of the film but then there's all this other stuff that's there and sometimes I think what's fascinating about this film is you don't know how seriously to take it because um, Guadalupe is really playing with you. There's like joke, really obvious clunky jokes about Lacan. Mm -hmm. There's kind of like really in intense prosthetics. <laughs> There's, um, you know, all, but then equally all this stuff that kind of hangs in the backdrop about the, the Red Army faction, the Baden-Meinhof group, the Holocaust, um, the politics in Berlin. So it's, it's like a really heady mix. Um, and on top of that, obviously, the supernatural elements that he takes from Argento and all the kind of crazy, covenous, witchy stuff. Um, it's completely crazy, really enjoyable uh, film that I think requires multiple viewings to unpick. Oh, definitely. I don't think it's something that you can watch once and think oh, you've got everything that he's, he's put on screen there as well. And the performances as well are really, are really captivating. Yeah, I'm coming round to Dakota Johnson, who I didn't really hold a candle for before. So Suspiria's uh, new film is opening at Watershed in November and fits thematically really yes. nicely into the Reclaiming the Witch season. So thanks very much, Thea. And people can find out more about um, the season and events at watershed.co. UK. We mentioned Suspiria, a new film. There are um, a few more new films opening this month. There are. Uh, and, um, at, at <laughs> Some Watershed. cracking new films. Yeah. Um, and so first for me is um, Mike Lee's Peterloo, which um, I had heard mixed things. And then there's kind of muted words from, from colleagues. Kind of, and they said, if you, if, you, if you want to know more about the corn reform laws of the... 1800s, then this film will give you the information that you need. I said, well, that sounds a bit dry. Um, uh, and I saw it um, earlier, I saw it last month at the London Film Festival, and I have to say I was probably going in with kind of those expectations. I thought it was fantastic, uh, both a historical drama, because of course when you say uh, Mike Lee, you tend to think about the quirks, um, sometimes dark, sometimes funny, of contemporary human relationships. You know, which can be um, really revealing in something like Secrets and Lies. I love Secrets and Lies. Or, or which can be, why am I living with these characters that I actually hate? Happy-go-lucky. Yeah, happy-go-lucky being, being for me, exactly for me one of those <laughs> those examples. And and you feel, as, but but that actually, you look at Mike Lee's um, uh, work and you say, well, there's Mr. Turner, uh, which was his last film, which is about the painter Turner, historical Topsy Turvey, um, about Gilbert. And Sullivan, uh, Vera Drake, which was set in in the in the 1960s, and and he's he's been doing historical uh, work. Peter Lou 
is um, about the rarely uh, mentioned, and I think this is one of the reasons why he's, why he's made the film, uh, Massacre of Peterloo, which was in St Peter's Field in Manchester in uh, 1819. Yeah, I nearly said Ken Loach there, and, and it, that's exactly, I think, what's happened here, is that Mike Lee has made um, a brilliant Ken, Ken Loach <laughs> film. It, it reminded me of Land and Freedom, which was, you know, Loach's film set about the, the, the Spanish Civil War, where people are talking about the issues that are affecting them, which bring those issues alive. And this is what uh, Lee has done with, with Peterloo. So it's set in 1819. The, the, the kind of early-ish, but, you know, the Industrial Revolution was happening. There was no workers' rights. There was no votes uh, for, for, for the majority of the population. Huge disparities of wealth, um, you know, unequal society. Those latter parts, you can see how it resonates with today in terms of the inequalities in society and um, the, the money being focused in the small percentage of the rich, which is where the power lies. Um, and so there's reflections on today from, from the past. But, but there's, there's a telling of a story of simply the massacre of um, British population by, by uh, armed forces, which, as I say, is not something that is discussed in the historical terms. People don't really know about Peterloo. So there's part of him, you know, surfacing what is, for him, uh, a local story because he was brought up in that um, part of the country. But telling historical drama, um, which resonates with today, uh, and it's 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 got that historical sweep. So it, it starts with a character returning from Waterloo, and of course there was that big um, battle with the the, the French. The, the soldiers coming back came back to virtually nothing if they were um, you know a private or whatever. Um, but also what the the English um, the British were were worried about was the potential of the revolution that was that had happened in France. And so they didn't want to see, they wanted you know, any insurrection, any thoughts outside of, they wanted people to play their role in this, you know, you manufacture, you do your job, um, you, no rights, and um, we'll earn the money and you know, we'll, we'll live our, our lives, and there's that separation. But there were reformists that were beginning to come in, and uh, Rory Kinnear plays uh, one of um, Henry Hunt, I think is the name. He was a popular orator, orator and reformist at the time. And there were the beginnings of people that were questioning the, the, what was going on. And of course, just round the corner was um, Karl Marx and, and Frederick Engels. Um, that were this was the, then going to form the basis of the the, the communist manifesto, and the Peter the, the actual incident was a whole everybody um, came together to hear the the reformists speak, and the, the the establishment saw this as insurrection and sent in the yeoman who had been drinking um, all day, and then the military came in. And it was, there was thousands of people penned in one space, and it was the slaughter of the innocents, you know, mm. you can see that. Um, and it was a, it's, a, it's a stain on, you know, sort of the, the, the British um, sort of public life, and something that not, um, as I say, not many people know about. So what, you know, credit to Lee that what he's done is he's used film to surface this story, but also really uh, make it resonate with, with today. I, as I say, I went in from, from a kind of position of, um, oh, bit of trepidation. No, yeah, a bit of trepidation to go and actually, I, I think he's done a fantastic job. 
It's such a great thing about how film can be so useful for rediscovering um, history, like you say. And another film this month that I think does exactly that, uses the, the kind of lens of cinema to open up history, is Black Mother um, by Kalika La. And it's a really fascinating film. I had the opportunity to see this at DocuFest and uh, it created quite a lot of heated discussion so I, I expect to, I would love to hear people's responses to the film and mm. I expect to hear um, quite differing responses to the film. But he's brought up in New York but his mother's side is Jamaican and his father is Iranian and he's been visiting the Caribbean going back to Jamaica ever since the age of three especially over New York winters so he, he had really strong family ties. And one of the things he did kind of throughout his life actually was go back with a, a camera. So um, what's I think aesthetically most amazing about this film is that it is just a complete mix of um, formats and aspect ratios because sometimes you're looking at footage that he's shot on Super 8, sometimes it's on a Bolex, and other times it's HD, so you know it's a kind of like wider frame. Um, and and you, you get a sense of the way in which the playfulness, I guess, of the past, present, and, and the sort of future just in, in the way that the aesthetics of the film work. It's really exquisite portraiture. And it, it has three distinct parts as well, so it kind of works through um, the idea of colonization and the, um, the effects and the, the, the situation in, in Jamaica in, in the kind of the first part, the colonial history of the island. Then it looks at the women in Jamaica now. And then in the third part, it kind of looks at mortality and death and it has um, a very personal story about the death of a patriarchal member in his family. So it, what I think the controversy with this film and why it's really fascinating is that some people have found that because it also mimics the um, stages of the three trimesters of pregnancy, that um, and it has a, a pregnant woman's body, a black woman's body in, in the film. It has a lot to do with the different roles of women on the island. And Kalikala does talk about the kind of, you know, that Jamaica was basically raped and then it became a prostitute and what, you know, what is the kind of contemporary situation for it. So he's using the female body and the, the country as, the, as sort of metaphor. So some of the controversy, I guess, around this film is whether or not it's got a very male-oriented gaze, whether it's a misogynist gaze or if it's othering to the body and the women on screen. Um, so there's a lot to unpick, as you can imagine. I mean, that's just given you a real uh, small sense of what is happening in this very beautiful film. A lot to digest, and one that I really think is going to have people wanting to have very long conversations. It probably produced, I think, at the festival where I saw it, um, not just a, a lively conversation, but a kind of almost like uh, people shouting, sort of, but with, with l real animation um, for absolute hours. I mean, we mm. talked about this into the very early hours of the morning. So um, please go see this film. Do be prepared for it to be a bit challenging. And definitely, I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts. Mm. So put them up on the, the comment card board or, or, you know, stop me in the cafe or write in mm. and tell us. And people can tweet you. They can also at, tweet me at, at Midnight Movies. Yeah, and, and myself at MSC45. Another eagerly anticipated film this month is Steve McQueen's Widows. I um, cannot wait. We have been waiting for this film ever since it, it, it was announced that Steve McQueen, the Turner winning artist, the Oscar winning film director, who was, um, his latest project was going to be an adaptation of Linda LaPlante's 1983 television series, Widows. And it, there was a, a double take in my head, was, was, he's doing what? 
you, you kind of feel, well, uh, um, his, his concerns are about sort of black representation, um, you know, his films have been about black history, 12 Years a Slave, I guess his most recent one, rather, and you think, well, so what's he doing tackling um, Lyndall Plant's Widows? And then you find out that, that, that Lyndall Plant's Widows was a huge influence on him as a young man. Um, he watched this TV series, and if people are old enough to remember it, it was a very impactful piece of television. And here, here, were, here was a um, story told, you know, say it came from Linda LaPlante, the great television uh, writer. Um, and it's about four, the story about, was about four women who um, don't know each other, but their husbands know each other and they're criminals and they go about a heist which goes wrong and all end up dead. And the, the, the widows um, find themselves coming together to, and how they deal with things is to finish off a future project that their husbands had planned in order to get themselves out of debt and out, out of trouble. And, and so it's about these four, four women, how they kind of relate and how they get on together. And what Steve McQueen has done brilliantly is, is yes, he's, he, this, is, this film is a kind of celebration of Viola Davis. Um, Much needed. It's about time, can I just say, I've like, been waiting for Viola Davis to finally be yeah. starring in a like, really decent role in a big movie. And I, I just don't understand why she's not being cast in everything. She's clearly one of the most talented actresses working today. What she does, what she is doing as an actress, I think is yeah. just absolutely spellbinding. Um, and I just am so pleased well, that somebody has finally he, put her in a he, big film. And this, of course, is then you go, ah, that is why Steve McQueen uh, is, has, has remade um, Lyndall Plant's Widows and used all the kind of status and power that he's got mm. to do exactly what you've said, is put Viola Davis square centre and at the front of this film. And she is absolutely tremendous. Um, it is a great uh, film about female power, um, about female relationships, because it's about the four, the four women coming together. There are... He also, a bit like Lee, has, has got some contemporary messages in there about, you know, um, inequalities and polit politics. There's some plots around, you know, there's sort of political shenanigans that are going on which resonate with contemporary America, about inequalities in black lives and, and white neighbourhoods. So these are all subtly around the edges, but at its core is a really great... Um, Right, we're going to have to do this heist in order to get these people off their backs. Look, sisters, let, let's sort this one out. Uh, which, and also, um, you know, it has made me think, I must get back to that Linda LaPlante <laughs> series and watch it. So that's another good thing about her. The final one to talk about okay, yeah, no, is okay. the one that, that literally is yeah, probably yeah. the film that I've most been waiting for. I'm still waiting. I haven't seen it yet. You have. Um, but by really one of the best filmmakers alive today and that's Hirokazu Koreeda and he has made a new film called Shoplifters which won the Palme d'Or in Cannes uh, and I adore his cinema because it is so beautiful, so meditative, so accessible and so brilliant to watch and it's for a really wide range of ages which I think is quite unique it's not very many filmmakers working that their films are really suitable for families um, you know I would constantly recommend his films to families and always with pleasing results uh, and and to kind of young adults as well so I mean I just am thrilled that there is another one of his films to dive into every time there is one it's like a it's like an angel fell from heaven yeah I, I saw um 
I saw the Corrida um, in Cannes, and what struck me about it, um, or I mean, it was such a kind of brilliant um, experience watching it for a start. But what struck me after it is that we are we are really seeing a filmmaker at, at the top of their their game. It is like really elegant, distilled filmmaking, which is all which is kind of invisible. You know, it's invisible. But what yes. happens is you are really wonderfully seduced into the story and the and the characters and and w with this film in particular he sets up a, a I mean, i'm not going to give um anything away but he sets up a family who who shoplifting is is one of the things they do that's the title but he sets up a family which you you through the film you realize is of a very different nature than the in quotes traditional family and i think this is one of the things that he is exploring in Japanese society, which yes. also resonates much wider, is you know what are family values? What are, what are what are the values that connect us? Um, and and through the, the the body of his work, you see that that is that is what he, he's been exploring in, in different ways. Is what is connected, and and the, the the pure joy of shoplifters is that it is done in such an elegant, distilled, and open way. Which um, I mean, I'm not sure of the certificate, but I would imagine it would be a PG. Or, I hope or, so. or something, you know, because, and it is, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really great piece of cinema. Yeah, he often meditates on, I mean, he, a lot of his films are around um, families, but also death, what happens in death or with broken families. So he lost his mother, and that's been a really big trope yeah. in a lot of his works. Um, but, you know, for people who might remember some of his other films, I Wish, like Father Like Son, Our Little Sister, mm. um, Still Walking. I mean, it's just beautiful mm. cinema that um, after the storm, all these films that resonate with those, like you say, the family values, but also kind of deconstructing that. Um, and also, of course, he is, you know, really a disciple of Ozu. So he, he really fo follows the you kind can of see cinematic that, you tradition. You can see that it comes from a very Japanese tradition yeah. um, of filmmaking. Um, not that you have to know any of that in order to appreciate, uh, to appreciate this film at all. I mean, I would go as far as to say that Hirokatsu Koreeda is one of the great filmmakers um, working. I'd agree with and, that. And the shoplifters is is you know kind of one of the pinnacles of of um, his career, and hopefully with many more uh, with many more to come. So that's just some of the films um, and seasons uh, reclaiming the witch that we've got coming up this month. There are there there, there are more. There are plenty more, including the Africa Eye Film Festival. <laughs> There's also the Africa Eye Film Festival. Tara, tell us what's going on at the well, Africa Well, I mean, there is tons of the Africa Eye Film Festival. We don't have time to go through the whole programme, but really looking forward to highlights like Rafiki, which I think just screened at LFF to great acclaim. Rafiki is um, a really important film. It's a really important film because it shows a really wonderful teenage um, romance. And that teenage romance is between two girls, two teenage girls. And that relationship is in Kenya which has got very severe laws and, and views on homosexual relationships. So, so when you watch it in the, the, where we are, in our context, it, it's a very wonderful romance between two women. But Kenya um, banned it, pulled it, and, and you, you see um, the tragedy that, that are around those lives. And so whilst yeah, I mean, it really, really resonates, um, but, and it's such a wonderful film. 
In addition to that, Train of Salt and Sugar, which is also an incredible film that I recommend people go see, um, set in the Mozambique Civil War of the 70s and 80s, in the late 80s when um, the railroad was where they would kind of try to, to, to travel um, and smuggle people out so that they could do trading with salt and sugar. There's plenty more in the program we haven't had time to mention at all, but you can find out more online. Yeah, you can indeed. Watershed.co.uk. That's all for this month. <laughs>